Welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast, where we aim to be as good at the human side of healthcare as we are at the clinical side of healthcare. My name is Chris Desmond. I'm a physiotherapist who's fascinated by how we can better help the person with the problem. Join us as we learn how to connect better, how to show up better, and how to understand our patients and ourselves better. Welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast. This is where we're joined by experts to explore the human side of healthcare so we can better help the person with the problem. Today, I am joined by Dr. Claire Killingback, who is Senior Lecturer of Physiotherapy at the University of Hull and fantastic last name for a physiotherapist. It is, it is awesome, Claire. It's great, isn't it? It took me a really long time to find a husband with a physio-appropriate last name, but I, I'm really happy I did. It was worth the wait. Yeah. How, how long are we talking? <laughs> yeah. Claire, I like to start things off just by asking people, why are you interested in the art of healthcare? Why are you interested in the human? So for me, really, that's, that's what we're about as physiotherapists, isn't it? It's like I became a physiotherapist because I like people because I wanted to work with people. I, I don't want to sit in an office behind a desk all day. And so for me, that human side of healthcare is like the biggest motivation for what we do. Yeah, we can have all the science behind what we do with our practice, but actually day to day, we are dealing with people. There is an art to dealing with people, isn't it? It's, it's a skill that you develop over time. You certainly get better at doing it, but patients are people at the end of the day and I like working with people so that's why the arts of being a good physio is important to me yeah awesome and I'm much the same I may have got into physio because I also get to wear shorts to work as well which is which is nice yeah um Claire have you always liked working with people yeah, yeah, I think like that. I think probably 18-year-old Claire was probably like a bit more scared of working with people and it was a bit intimidating. But actually, I one of the things I really valued about physio was that our therapy times with our patients. I remember truly decided what I wanted to do long-term and I, I kind of thought, well, doctors kind of rush in, they write a prescription, they rush out, nurses will rush in and do their thing and rush out. But as a physio, you are with your patients. So it's about having that high quality relationship. And I mean, I do interviews now with physio students to recruit them to the physio program and say to me, you know, why do you want to be a physio? Nine times out of 10, it's because they want to help people because they like people and being with people. So yeah, I think to me, that has been a real thread that's just gone throughout my career. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't always like people. Uh, I'm the person. But yeah, I, I guess I'm a people person. That's one of the joys of being a physio. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Claire, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the University of Hull at the moment? Yeah, so it's a really exciting opportunity in that I moved to Hull three years ago, specifically to set up a brand new physio program. The, the part of England where Hull is, they really struggle to recruit and retain their own physio pool. So they thought, well, okay, well, if we have our own physio program, we can home grow our own physios. So it was this amazing opportunity to have a, a clean slate to write a physio program from scratch. So what was really important to me was to think about, okay, well, I, like I, I, I'd led a physio program before. I kind of knew what physio program looked like, but I wanted to know what are the physios of the future going to look like? What are the skills that they're going to need? 
So I spent my first few months in Hull just really talking to the local therapists, talking to the therapy managers, talking to patients who'd received physiotherapy and saying, you know, what, what's important to you to have in a physiotherapist? So yes, it's a given that we need them to have the clinical skills, they need to be competent and all of those sort of things. But what are the things that take it from a really, you know, yes, you've had a physio encounter to it being a really high quality physio encounter? And the kind of things that came out of that conversation were that well, we need, as patients, we need our physios to want to work with us in partnership, to see us as the expert in our own bodies, particularly if we've got a long-term condition, we've lived with this for a long time. And so we bring a level of expertise to that physio consultation. From a therapy manager's perspective, you know, they need physios of the future who are going to be resilient, who are going to be able to manage in really tough national health service settings where there are pressures on time, there are pressures on finances, there are pressures on staff. So how do we produce a kind of a cohort of students who can go through tough things, are able to recognise that, but look after themselves like self-care? physios of people as well so we need to think about them don't we so how are they going to kind of go through those tough times but be able to learn from that and bounce back from it so the curriculum that we wrote you know yes it has all those biomedical things that you need to know as a physio but what we've really tried to do is thread through that curriculum things like principles of person-centered practice self-management approaches how are you going to help your patients self-manage beyond that physio encounter where you see them for that time limited period and so part of what I did, because I'm an academic now and I'm a researcher, is I wanted to take a research-informed approach to doing that. So I did a number of research studies, but specifically with the viewpoint of understanding that better so that we could teach that better and the students could then learn from that research. So I, I hope the curriculum that we've written will really prepare our students to be very empowering, partnership person-centered physios. So when I'm talking about my students, can I just do a shout out to them and say, call from uh, from the University of Hull. I, yeah, I love working with you all. I'm very proud of you all. You've sold me. I'm quite keen to come and come and do my undergraduate de- physio degree there now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to convince my wife, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. You can do your undergrad physio degree twice, can't you? <laughs> if only. <laughs> In fairness, if you had said that to me when I was 18, and going into physiotherapy, I don't know if I was would have been quite as excited by it as I am today. Yeah, and I do appreciate it. I think sometimes it is a little bit of a hard sell for our students because it's about expectations, isn't it? When you start a course and you say, well, okay, I'm going to be a physio, so I'm going to learn my anatomy and I'm going to learn my physiology and I'm going to learn all my special tests for musculoskeletal outpatients. And, and yes, it is all of those things. But if you can't communicate with your patients, it doesn't matter how good your anatomy is. So we, we really try and communicate that well to patients. And I, I think the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating in three years' time when we kind of, when these physios are working in practice. And uh, yeah, hopefully they will have really well-rounded skills. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing from you about how they turn out. Claire, I, I want to jump into the meat of our conversation I think around the the philosophy of person-centered care, what are, what are some of the philosophies of, of person-centered care? And maybe as well as that, how does that differ from patient-centered care? Yeah, so it's a really nuanced distinction, I think. So we have got, we've got 
patient all these terms haven't we patient-centered care person-centered care should it be care should it be practice I, I think really what the literature is talking around when it says patient-centered care it's really thinking about that just that that patient as a patient and focusing on a functional life when we're talking about person-centered care or person-centered practice we are talking about that person as a person and yes they might have a functional limitation that you're seeing them um, with as a physiotherapist but that functional limitation is in the context of them as a whole person. So it's thinking about their social backgrounds, their cultural background, their spiritual background, their, you know, where do they live, all of those sorts of aspects. So I think when we're talking about person-centered care, we are talking about really how do I look at this whole person, not just in this physio encounter, in this little physio box, I guess. So it's kind of a comparator of how many times can this person do a sit to stand or how fast can this person do a sit to stand versus can this person get off the couch at home and rush to their kid who is about to knock a pot of boiling water off the stove yeah yeah absolutely it's taking all that big picture stuff into account and sometimes i feel a little bit silly when i talk about it because i mean person-centered care is about it's that golden rule isn't it it's about treating others as you would want to be treated yourself which in itself is so simple but then I get into the meat of, you know, how do we try to teach this to students? And it's like, well, it is just treating other people as you would want to be treated. But it's so much more than that because all of a sudden you're, you're working in this high pressure healthcare context. And it might be the, the, the philosophy of the environment that it's in, you know, a busy, acute hospital. You don't always have that time to do all those nice person-centered things that you would want to do with people because you literally only have 10 minutes with that person and then you're on to the next one. But actually this person's really upset about something that's totally different to what you're meant to see them for. And it's, you know, how do you help hear that with them as a person, but then also help them get towards their goals? And I think a big part of this conversation, which I'm actually really grateful to my occupational therapy colleagues for helping me understand more about meaningful occupation. And so some person-centered practice comes down to that goal setting. So exactly as you said, our goal is for this person to do 10 sit-to-stands, to be able to walk 20 meters, they can get to the bathroom so we can get them home. But actually what's meaningful for that person is I really want to be able to get down on the field so I can play with my grandkids. And yes, I might need to do all these exercises to get to that point. So how do we help that person get to what's meaningful to them to be engaging in that meaningful activity in their life rather than limiting it to just this real physiocentric goal? So then, you know, who's setting the goal? Is it the physio or actually is it the person setting the goal? And I know from my own experience, often it's me as the physio because, you know, it's, it's much easier for me to say, well, I want to do this, that and the other, as opposed to hearing this person say a goal that you're like, oh, I don't quite know how I get you there. So I need to have some clinical bravery to help me be brave enough to have those conversations and actually help the patient get to what matters to them within that physiotherapy world. And some stuff will be out of what we can do, but within the boundaries of what we can do, how do we... How do we listen to that person to understand where they want to go and then empower them to get? Exactly. And I think with the goal setting as well, you have, you've mentioned the patient, you've mentioned the physiotherapist, which are both really important, but also what's the funder? Like what's the pressure from the system or the pressure from the funder, depending on where you're working, that is the KPI that they're wanting you to hit for this person 
as well, which then kind of influences your thinking and then you're trying to kind of filter goals through that lens as well, which is is really challenging and sometimes drags us further away from what that person actually wants. What's up? And I think that's a really good, that context that we work in, that paradigm, we have to be aware of that because in some ways, you know, that, that is the reality of healthcare. We, we can't change that. So it's thinking about, well, there are some things that I can't change, but actually talk now about person-centered practice being more of it on a continuum. So even if you're in a, a super high-tech, biomedical-driven world, you know, the, the complete other end of the spectrum might be it's really nice person-centered environment, <clears throat> but that's on a continuum. And so there are things within that environment that I can't control, but actually there are things as a physio, small things that I can do to try and get me a little bit closer on that continuum towards person-centered practice. Um, and often in those high-tech, quick paced worlds, it can be as simple as, you know, making sure you always ask, you know, what does the pace person like to be called? You know, tell me about why you're here instead of hammering through a whole list of questions of well, where does it hurt, what makes it better, what makes it worse? You know, just tell me about how I can help you today. So trying to change some of the ways that we maybe go about our assessment processes, but also being realistic about that time. It, it, it's complex. It's so complex. And that's why I know we're talking about kind of worms here really, aren't we? <laughs> Definitely. There's a, there's a massive can of worms with, with that. And, and sometimes that, that question is, tell me, tell me all about it. I often yes. find that, well, sometimes people will still be talking to you three and a half hours later and yeah. if, you, if you ask them that question. But I often find in, in my practice that I will get the clinical answers that I need from asking that question. If I'm, if I'm thinking, okay, hey, I've got someone with the sore back coming in to see me, probably got seven clinical questions that I need to ask someone in order to do my job well, plus a few tests that I wanna be doing as well. And if I ask them that open-ended question about why have you come to see me, they'll answer five of those seven for me. They might not tell me that they're having bowel or bladder problems, but I can go and ask that one as a, as a follow-up. But they'll deliver a lot of that information. So it's not, it's not always the, the time-restricted questioning that that some people make it out to be if you're, if you're listening for those answers at, at the same time. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chris. I'm sure some of the research around this, I think it's still with doctors, but they basically said a patient will walk in to see a doctor and they're able to talk for about 18 seconds before they're interrupted. Whereas actually, if that person was able to just kind of tell that main reason about it from the doctor, they would probably finish that within like 90 seconds. So actually, you're right. It's that um, challenge of not just jumping and interrupting, interrupting our patients. But this is a skill we develop from being a novice to being an expert, you know, which is where you are. So, for example, I was talking to one of my physio students the other day and that they're doing a reflective practice assignment. And they said, Claire, I, you know, I really tried to listen to my patients and they would get upset sometimes. And sometimes it would take me 45 minutes to do a subjective assessment. And I could see my educator sitting there looking at me being like, come on, hurry up, you've got to get through this. But they were really upset and I didn't know when to stop them. And so some of that is about, as that novice practitioner, you know, learning when to say, okay, well, we've got five minutes to have a little bit of a chat and then we're going to, you know, do some special tests or, you know, do something else we need to work out what's going on. So, so probably the best way we can use that five minutes is for you to just tell me about why you're here. 
or, you know, that power of touch, like when you put your hand on someone, if it's appropriate, that will often help them stop talking. And then you can come up with, well, that's a really great point. That's so interesting that you're saying. I wonder if you could just tell me about, then you get in with one of those seven questions, isn't it? So I think sometimes we forget that we get to a point of having some of these expert communication skills, but it's like, where did they come from in the first place? And how do we, how do we get even better at doing that as expert practitioners? Yeah. What's your answer? to your own questions there. Yeah, so it depends if you are the novice or the expert, doesn't it? And in, in the novice, some of that comes down to patient mileage. And as a student, you do have a bit longer to do those subjectively mm. because you, you are honing those skills of, like when you're first learning to drive a car and it's like, oh, it's all these things I have to think about. And then you drive a car and it's fine, you don't think about them anymore. As an expert, I wonder if some of it is around yeah, like I come to them about clinical bravery and this is a bit of research that one of my PhD students has been doing and really drawing on some of that literature around how do we do our subjective assessment? Do we do it as that narrative? Tell me about why you're here or do we do that as a list of questions I'm going to work through? And so I think some of it might be around being brave enough to be like, okay, we're just telling about what's going on in the situation. We've got, but then put a time boundary on it perhaps. Definitely. And I think um, I, I pulled a quote out of one of your papers and I'm just going to read it out now because I've got a question to follow up with it. The challenge is that most therapists will not have consciously considered the philosophical underpinnings or values which shape their practice. I read that and I was like, holy shit. I don't know if I've done that. Exactly, exactly. And, this, and I need to give credit to that. That wasn't necessary. And like I was drawing that from someone else's research, I think it was uh, Trent 2006 was kind of talking about that. But I saw that and I was like, yeah, that's absolutely right. And it sounds way more complicated than what it is when we start talking about philosophy. But really it's that core stuff of getting down to your attitudes and your values and what's important to you as a physio. So I, I now I do this exercise with my students and within the first couple of weeks of being here at the university, I get them to write a philosophy on the kind of physio they want to be. And we do it after a session when I've had a service user come in. So we've used, and they've looked at a range of stories that the service user has pre-written. We said, right, in these stories, in these healthcare encounters, where, you know, where is their strong communication? Where is it poor communication? Where are the person's sense of practice? Where is it not? So I'm kind of using, using these stories to try and give my students who have only just arrived a little bit of um, empathy, I guess, for what it feels like to be a patient. And then I said, yeah, let's so run it you know, five to eight bullet points on the kind of physio that you want to be. So for example, it might be something like, I'm going to be a physio who resets every time we go into a patient encounter so that I'm not taking my baggage, we get to want of a better word, from a previous patient encounter that maybe didn't go very well or I'm struggling to help this person get better. I'm not then going to dump that onto my next patient encounter. I'm going to go in fresh and clean and like, and open to listen to this to this person or it might be around i want to be a physio who no matter how pressured i am will always ask them how they are what sort of day they're having you know so it doesn't have to be complex things and, and that's because i'm working with first year students who have no clinical mileage so far 
But I think it, it's probably a good activity to do, even as someone who's been, you know, however long you've been practicing, because your philosophy will be informed, you know, probably from your biomedical education, from your reflective practice, from your patients, from your peers. And actually, what kind of physio do you want to be? Because that really determines how you work with your patients. And, you know, if you want to be a physio who sees the patient as bringing a level of expertise, put that into your philosophy. And then just, don't just like write it as a reflective thing and be like, okay, well, I've got a philosophy now. Like write it and then revisit it. So, you know, when you have to do, I don't know if you get called up for like annual audits or as part of your ongoing professional development, review that philosophy. So my plan is that whenever my students come back from placement, we'll do a placement debrief. And I will say, right, pull out your philosophy. Tell me where in placement you are faithful to your philosophy and tell me when you really struggled to implement it. <clears throat> and if you struggled to implement it, why did you struggle to implement it? And part of what I'm doing, that is, you know, building in that self-care so they don't beat themselves up if things are really tough on a particular placement or that they become more cognizant of that paradigm that they're working in, that claim I just I couldn't possibly have you know, done this particular aspect of, with my patients because there was just no time. It was just so busy and, you know, my educator perhaps didn't see that as being important or the environment that just wasn't important or I might do this, but there was no healthcare professional. They just didn't really see that as being important. So that was what really shut it down because I think it's those levels of regular reflective conversation that that means you don't just think of your philosophy, but you then spiral that into constantly improving your practice because whatever we do with reflective practice has to have an impact on patients doesn't it so I think that philosophy stuff is so cool one of the things I write about one of my papers is Martin Buber who was this philosopher uh, and he his philosophy was really around dialogue and he was essentially saying like your dialogue really the way you interact with people is more about the attitude that you hold as a person towards other people rather than a technique or a skill set. So yes, I need to make sure that I teach my students that they understand they need to have good body language and open posture, maintain eye contact with the patients, like all the basic stuff that we do. But more than anything, I think if my students get their attitude right with their philosophy, they will be great physios. Because if there are if they're a physio who is curious about their patients and wants to see their patients as people, they will automatically have an open body language of being really informed and engaged. So we always then don't have to teach communication skills if we've got it right here on the inside. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I'm going to loop right back to the philosophy part, Claire. And I just want to ask you, are there, if, if someone after listening to this wants to go away and develop their, their philosophy, are there some prompts that you give to your students to kind of start that process other than listening to user experience so the the activity i do with students really is about trying to develop that empathy where they don't have it i guess by listening to stories but that's pretty much all i give them so they can then kind of take it in whichever direction that they want and i literally just say come up with five to eight bullet points the template being i want to be a physio who is this is important because so just kind of those two sentences it feels really pedestrian when mm. they think like that and really like first year because that is what it is. It is that is great though. Maybe a different question then is because you're not going to get it right. You right in parentheses first time 
when they come back and see you, how do you prompt them to evolve their philosophy? Might be a better question for you. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I mean, it's those, those questions about where were you faithful to your philosophy and where did you struggle with your philosophy? Because that then will throw up questions of, is my philosophy realistic as an NHS physio or is it unrealistic? And then at that point, where do I tweak my philosophy? And it might be, you know what? No, this is really still what I believe and who I want to be. But it might just be that me as a person, I'm just, I'm not made to be a physio in this particular environment. I'm more made to be a physio in this environment. And actually then you can be more faithful to your philosophy because you're working in an environment that supports that a bit more. Mm. Yeah. Or is there a way that I can bring my philosophy in on at a smaller dosage to begin with, with this? Do I need to, do I need to be kind of hitting that high level straight off the bat with it? when I am a novice, when I'm not experienced and I don't know how to do it, or can I bring it in in a small way and then look to build from there? But I think uh, like that that's a really cool point as well that you make about, okay, when I'm choosing a career or choosing a direction to move in within the health system, like my philosophy doesn't sit in this area particularly well. I should, I should potentially go and choose heading over, heading over this way rather than revamping my entire philosophy. Because I think in five to seven years, you're going to run into trouble if you have cut your philosophy and it doesn't actually, it's not holding true to who you are as a person. You're, you're much more likely to get burnt out and, and become cynical and end up with unfortunately one of those, those old healthcare professionals who we, we know, we all know one of them. We do. And I, I don't want to go there. And it's because it's that level of integrity, isn't it? If your internal philosophy is not congruent with your kind of experience, reality, where you're working, there's a rub that happens there that is uncomfortable. And I know for me, like, I'm, I was never going to be a musculoskeletal outpatient physio because, you know, the context of that here, I just so really struggled with it's, you know, you've got 15 minute appointments and it's boom, 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 boom the whole day. But actually, I thrived as community physio, where I'm going in to see patients in the home environment in these really complex, complex situations I'm seeing people in. And I'm like, right, okay, how do we how do we help you in this situation? Whereas I know I've had, whereas working before in community practice, we had a little waiting list at one point. And so there was some locum MSK physios who then came in to help us in the community. They managed like a day and they were like, I, I can't do this. This is just way too complex. There are too many unknowns. And that's because we're just we're wired differently as people. So I think part of that developing your philosophy is a self-awareness of who you are as a person and what's going to work for you in your practice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, not being afraid to let it evolve over time as well, because as you, as you become more experienced, then your ability to juggle more, juggle different balls, I think has, has expanded at times. One other thing that I, that I wanted to talk about kind of as we're on this is the work that you're doing probably challenges the idea of the identity of what it is to be a physiotherapist and the way that it's always been done. And I was, I was really interested in like how, how, what you had seen as the way that people conceptualize the physiotherapy identity in the UK and how how you may want to reconceptualize it and I'm aware that 
there are multiple health professionals that listen to this as well. You guys use physio as an example because I'm sure your professions have these challenges also. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So huge question. And I could probably go a number of oh, yeah. ways to answer that. But um, let me pick up on this self management aspect. And I'm also aware of this. Like, I don't want your Twitter to be bombarded with all these people who disagree with me. It's like, I'm just trying to have a conversation and answer that. So that's okay. I don't mind. Only, only about 100 people follow me, Claire. So it's, <laughs> it's not going to be bombarded. Don't worry. So yeah, let me think about this self-management aspect and, and kind of how, how I got onto that from my own practice. So I was working as a community physio and there were a number. So I had a very high case of people who were at risk of falling and who had fallen. Uh, and so in the UK context, one of the pathways for that is someone would come and do what's called a better balance exercise program. So you'd normally come to the hospital, it would be six weeks or twice a week, and you'd go through a 12 exercise program uh, with them there. And then with the expectation they would do some of those exercises on their own at home. Get to the end of six weeks, boom, my job is done. They're not going to fall over anymore. See you later. Yeah. yeah. No, that's not the reality. That's crazy, isn't it? And we know really for that, we're talking about behavior change. We're talking about long-term behavior change where you're trying to get people to do really specific balance exercises that we know will reduce their risk of falling, but they're really hard to stick to doing them because they can be a bit boring sometimes. They're not meaningful for people, are they? So when that becomes a question, some like, wow, we just, it's just not really working, is it? What are we going to do about it? So, I began to look at some of the local community exercise programs where I lived. So these exercise programs happened in the local village hall, around the corner from where people live. They were really like holistic, you know, a bit of aerobic, a bit of strengthening, a bit of balance exercises as part of them. So we then tried to like seek my patients into these programs once I was discharged. But I always felt like I had to do it on the down low because I thought, when I spoke to other physios about it, they're like, oh, but Claire, how do you know what the quality in that program's like? And that might be really bad. And are they going to sue us because we're recommending it to them? And I'm having like, wait, you'd rather your patients did nothing than you tried to get them into this long-term community exercise program as a way to self-manage these exercises and, and reduce their risk of falling. So this got me interested. And then opportunity came up to do a PhD at Bournemouth University, specifically looking at community-based exercise programs. So I then spent three years studying programs that work, have really high abuse rates. People were coming back week after week, year after year, like 70% 70 of people who started them were still going years later. And so part of this research, I then went to Singapore to present at the World Confederation Physio Congress. And, you know, I got my poster and I'm presenting it and I'm a little first year PhD student. And loads of physios that came were like, oof, I don't think we can be doing that as physios. I mean, we're the experts, aren't we? How can we be trusting these community exercise instructors? And I was like, oh my word, this is, this is like, we're never going to help patients to be able to self-manage if we can't then think about getting them into long-term meaningful activities that are important to them. So I suppose I'm using this as an example to say, like, I, I know we have such a long way to go in practice still. And, and you know, one of the findings that came out of that self-management paper that I wrote, I was just kind of shocked how physios' attitudes towards self-management are really not where they need to be, which is why I'm trying to embed it to my program so that the next generation are better at it. But I think it's a very difficult conversation to have with people. And I know even now when I have these kind of conversations, it's often people are often quite resistant to it. But in my head, I'm like, 
physio of the future, we need to be trusting other exercise professionals because we can't do it all ourselves. And we're too expensive as physios in some way. Why, why should we be doing it all? What is going to happen to our patients once we discharge them? We need long-term behavior change to embed that into people's lives in a way that is meaningful and fun for them. Like, it needs to be fun, otherwise you won't stick with it, will you? Yeah, yep. Exactly. That was a bit of a long-winded way, but I, I think practice needs to move towards us being better at self-managing, helping our patients self-manage. But I think as a profession, we have still got a ways to go. And I know we're not unique in that physios. I know there are other professions who are facing some more challenges. Yeah, and I think... <laughs> One of the one of the things that came up for me when you were talking, I can like I, I can see the the physios there standing with their arms crossed, saying, "Oh, I don't know about that." And I think part of it is is potentially is fear based. Is that we're afraid? We're afraid to one get things wrong for this person, which which. I think hinders our ability to help when we're afraid to get things wrong, but we're also afraid to relinquish control. And I think that was one of the, that was one of the themes in your papers as well. And I think that's, that's what, what you're talking about right here is like, how do we, how do we let go of, of some of that control that is trained into us? I guess through our undergraduate programs and also through the systems that we that we work in, and probably a lot from the mentorship that we get from some of the older practitioners who have treated more under a biomedical system, which where control is is important. And if you do what I tell you, you will get better. And I I, I guess that that probably leads us to the question: is who is the expert in this situation? And why do we why why do we need to keep control? And I, I think that is a really good reflective question that anyone listening to this podcast, you know, could could spend time really thinking about like who who yeah, who is the expert in that patient encounter? You know, it's interesting. If you were to there is a hierarchy, isn't there? And a power dynamic, no matter how much we try and level the playing field, if a patient, particularly if a patient is coming into hospital they're immediately trying to be the good patient and they go into that patient mode. And, and that's one of the stories that Louise told me through that study when I asked her about her experiences of it. You know, she said, if I was to meet a physio in the supermarket, totally different. It's like a level playing field. But as soon as you're a patient going into a hospital, that, that power dynamic is different. And so again, some of that is the context, but some of that is about our attitude as people. And if we have an attitude of one of the experiences Louise talks about is when she's had a total knee replacement, or I think it might be when she's broken her wrist and the physio was such a positive experience because they came and they saw that she was a, a whole person that had quite a lot of complex things going on. And so she was more than just a broken wrist and, and they were able to bring their expertise and well, this is what we think would be important for you, but they listened to her as a person. Uh, and saw her as the expert in her body. And so by doing that, it was, there was a level playing field that happened. And I think if we work out our philosophy again, I'll come back to that of, well, actually, how do I see my patients? Do I see them as being equal partners? Do I see them as being people? Or am I the expert and I'm bringing my kind of professional authority to that? And it's a really challenging thing. I think you say we need to undo 
as part of our undergraduate training and, and do a little bit as part of our post-qualifying mentorship. Who is the expert in those patient encounters? Yeah, and I don't think it needs to be a either or. I think it can be a both to that question. And for, for me, like, I guess it's a, it's a shared expertise is like when I'm working with people or especially when I'm working as part of an IDT, we all bring different aspects. We do all bring different areas of expertise and the patient brings their expertise as well about, about their body, about the context, which they, which they live in, which actually we need to all apply our expertise through or two, probably through is a better word than two in this instance, if we're talking power dynamics and like we, we're not able to like fully utilize our own expertise, I guess, if we don't allow our patients or the people that we're seeing to have agency over their expertise as well. I think it's, it, it waters down what we can bring if we're not, if we're not sharing that power with them. Yeah. And one of the papers I've written, it was like, there was this big thing in the UK news about mansplaining and how, you know, like then explaining things to women who they already knew about it, but in a way that like they didn't know about it. And I I, I do, I talk in one of my papers about physiosplaining because we're at risk if we don't treat our patients with lot, who particularly who have long-term conditions, who come with all this expertise, you know, not just long-term conditions though, we're at risk of physio-explaining to these people that might have been self-managing something like that for ages and they just need a bit of help, they just need a bit more advice and they can carry on self-managing. So yeah, let's not be physio-explainers. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy that, that term. I've, I've written it down and I've got six exclamation marks afterwards. <laughs> I was like, oh. I got hit a little bit on that. You know, when you, you publish a paper and it has peer review, I think some of the peer reviewers didn't like it as a term. But I'm like, no, I think it's a really cool way of explaining. We really are at risk of yeah. this sometimes. That would be one of the old crusty ones that's standing at the back of you saying, are you sure? Um, <laughs> I shouldn't stereotype, should I? Claire, how do we, like, how do we avoid physiosplaining? Are there, like, we've, a lot of what we've talked about today will help us avoid it, but are there any other things that we could, we can utilize with our, with our patients or with our own philosophies that you think will help us avoid that? I, I think it's, it really comes down to listening to our patients, which I know is really cliche, but listening with the way that we actually hear. And the way that we ask those questions, so, you know, we've already spoken about, you know, tell me about why you're here to see me today, but, but then really listening for what that means and, and, you know, saying, well, what has worked for you in the past? Well, okay, let's try and build on some of that. What hasn't worked for you in the past? Well, okay, let me just not give you another sheet of exercise, which you're going to struggle to do. Let me think about how do I help you? Um, embed a new routine into your lifestyle. Like we clean our teeth every morning, don't we? From being a kid, I'm such a pain having to clean my teeth every day. But I do it now because it's part of my routine and it feels weird if I don't. So now that we can call patients get to a point where okay, you probably do need to keep doing some of these exercises long term to maintain it. How do we work it to make sure that it is part of your routine? But by listening to them so that we're not then telling them stuff that they already know. Because a lot of them, they should take Google. They are super educated on their conditions. So, yeah, listening in a way that we hear, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's the hearing beyond the, the clinical information that's coming through to you because we're really good at hearing that. 
uh, and we're really good at, at writing that down in our notes and putting a diagnosis and in, in a treatment plan based on that. But it's hearing that other stuff. It's hearing that tone of voice that someone's using when they're, when they're telling you something and then not leaving it there because I think listening is a really important part of it. But I also think it's making sure that you ask good questions too because the quality of information that you get to listen to is somewhat dependent on the questions that you are asking as well. So if someone, one of the, one of the things, one of the questions that I would ask someone, if the tone of voice that they use when they answered a question is a little bit weird, I just, I just say to them, it's like, you didn't sound sure with that answer there. What's, what's going on there? Is there some more that you'd like to add or is there something else that's, that's happening around that? And it's, it's weird and wonderful sometimes the, what people will come out with based off just that simple question. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really good point, Chris. Claire, I mean, I could talk with you for hours and hopefully we'll have a chance to do another podcast or four or five at some point, but I reckon people probably need to go to work now. So heading off to work today, they're listening to this in the commute. What should they do? do practically today based off our conversation? Yeah, so I, I think probably what I would ask people to do is just reflect and spend a little bit of time thinking about their own practice. Think about that kind of physio that they are. Think about the kind of physio that they want to be. I've got a few reflexive practice questions at the end of one of my papers. And so let me just share a few of those now. So one of them is around, you know, where do those boundaries of expertise lie between the patient and the therapist? So really to ask people to reflect on that, the answers I'm going to share. So there's kind of different views of philosophy of practice on self-management. So do I, do I view my practice from this really narrow perspective of helping people to manage their condition well? Or do I see it from that broader perspective where um, I see them helping people manage well with their condition? So it's a really nuanced difference. Do, you, do I help them manage their condition well or do I help them manage well with their condition? And so I think thinking about that question a little bit will also help change practice a little bit. And also just really simply, do I view my patients as people? Now, most of the people listening to this probably do. So then the question is, well, how do I help challenge those around me who potentially are more biomedical? And that can be really difficult, can't it? So it might be thinking about, okay, well, can we do a journal club and let's use one of these papers to really challenge how we think about our practice? Or can we do I mean, like a reflective practice club? Can we bring some of our reflections for the way that we talk about our encounters with patients from that professional perspective and ask each other these difficult questions about, you know, where am I being controlling with my patients? And then where am I actually letting my patients talk to me in a way that I can hear? Can you use this podcast as a type of journal club and have it as like a jumping off point for these conversations with your, with your colleagues as well? Um, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, and listen to this podcast and get everyone together and say, you know, were they talking under rubbish for us this and stuff like that, that we can't actually use to improve our practice? Mm. Yeah. And as I say to everyone, like I talk slowly, so you can listen to it on probably 1.25 speed and I'll just sound like a normal person. So hopefully Claire will, will sound okay with that as well. So it won't, it won't take your whole 45 minutes. Claire, 
Thank you so much for joining me. It's been an, an awesome conversation today. If people want to read your research papers or want to connect with you uh, or follow you on Twitter, what's the what's the best way for them to to reach out, touch base? Yeah. So if they're just going to the University of Hull website and type in Claire Killing back on my profile, all my papers should be available there. I'm a complete Luddite when it comes to social media, so I don't have Twitter. So yeah, but feel free to get in touch with me, email me. I'm very happy to have conversations with people. Yeah. Twitter's quite yelly, I find. It's one of my least favorite social media platforms. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the I can ban people and tell me, oh, Claire, this person really didn't like what you're doing with your research. And I'm like, really? Oh, hang on. Why don't you have a conversation with me instead of yelling at someone else on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Claire, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Slash this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. That is a wrap. Thanks everyone for tuning into the show. If you've enjoyed it, then make sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the weekly episodes. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to share this out with a mate that you reckon might enjoy it. And if you want to enhance your skills in this area even more, then watch out for the Art of Healthcare community coming in 2021. It's a truly interdisciplinary space for us to upskill our art. If you want a sneak peek for more info, head over to artofhealthcare.mn.co. That's artofhealthcare.mn.co. And a couple of quick thank yous. First of all, thank you to my brother, Jeremy Desmond, for the amazing theme music. And thank you to you guys for joining me as we look to improve our art.